Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will talk about prevention of sepsis. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Alberani from Oman to get us started. Hello everybody and thank you for joining the second session of the Congress titled Prevention of Sepsis. And I'm Maher Al-Bahani from Royal Hospital in Oman and I have the pleasure to moderate this session. We have excellent speakers talking on very interesting topics. Each talk will be for 15 minutes, including three minutes of discussion. I would like to remind our audience that they can type their questions anytime on the left-hand side of their screen. Without much delay, we will start off with the keynote lecture by Dr. Peter Pronover, who is well known to everyone here on his famous and continuous work to reduce hospital-acquired infection that has saved thousands of lives. Dr. Pronovos is an advisor to the WHO World Alliance for Patient Safety, and currently he is a Senior Vice President of Patient Safety and Quality and Director of the Armstrong Institute for Patient Safety and Quality at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Pronovos will speak on the barriers in the fight against hospital-acquired infections. Dr. Pronovos, the stage is yours. Thank you so much for having me here, and uh, what an honor for me to be invited and to speak with these other uh, friends and esteemed colleagues. What I'd like to share with you is what we're learning in improvement science, that how it might help us prevent sepsis and how it might help you organize your work. But to start, I'd like you to write the words, I will, down. I will. You see... Preventable harm is far too common, and these sessions aren't only to educate. They're about what you do after these sessions, and so we'll ask you to reflect on what you might do differently. The story I'd like to share with you is about how we worked to reduce one type of infections, central line-associated bloodstream infections. And our journey began in 2001 on a snowy Baltimore night in a darkened corner of the ICU when Josie King, an 18-month-old girl who looked just like my daughter, was taken off of life support and died in her mother's arms. She died from a catheter infection. And as you know, these aren't exotic conditions. In 2001, at the time of her death, they killed over 30,000 people in the U.S. That's about as many people who die from breast or prostate cancer. But at the time, Every doctor had been taught that these infections are inevitable, that sometimes little girls like Josie are going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. After she died, her mother, Sorrell, said to me, could you tell me that this isn't going to happen to my other daughters? And I said, no, I can't, because that's where the environment of medicine had taken me. So we decided to push back against that and question it. And we turned to improvement science, where we drew upon different disciplines, mashed up ideas, and aligned them to pull multiple levers in a big way. We started with declaring a goal of eliminating infections, and it was a bold statement at the time. We created a checklist of best practices to make it easy to perform the, the evidence-based practices. We fed data back to clinicians about their infections rate that revealed gaps in the systems and created accountability from board to bedside. 
We created connected communities where doctors and nurses from one hospital learned from doctors and nurses from another. We spread the program state by state across the U.S. and now in several other states. And now these infections are down over 80% across the United States. It's one of the most remarkable uh, improvements in patient safety since we've been focused on it with Ter Human. And as we think about what we might learn from this journey, I'd like to explore our learnings at three levels. The first is the policy level, and my colleagues at CDC and ARC and I published to say, well, why did this work at a policy level? How are we able to spread a program globally? Well, as you all know, you need a valid measurement system, and there's preciously few measures in most areas of safety. Infections, we happen to have a really robust system, thanks in large part to the CDC's efforts. We had evidence-based practice that decades of research guided us what to do. We invested in improvement or implementation science. Really key idea where unlike traditional research where we test is Coke better than Pepsi, that is it's feed forward, improvement science starts at the end. That is, I want to eliminate infections and work backwards to design an intervention to improve it. We created local ownership and peer learning communities and we aligned and synergized global efforts around a single measure. Now, when we were looking at this, though, we said, those policy efforts are great, but what's going on in a hospital that would allow us to drive improvements? And so we borrowed a tool from the nuclear industry that is called peer-to-peer review. So we visited hospitals with very low infection rates and very high infection rates and said, what was different and what could we learn? And what we found was, though the checklist got a lot of attention, and it is important it wasn't the secret sauce alone. Rather, when we went into hospitals, there were very specific things that if all of them were done, they were near zero on infections. But if they weren't done, their infection rates were quite high. And those four things were quite simply that starting with senior leaders, they declared and communicated a goal of zero harm. Now, ultra-safe organizations understand that they're never going to be able to get that goal, but that doesn't keep them from having the courage to declaring and communicating it as a goal. We recognize it's going to be a struggle, and we may not get there. Second, they created an enabling infrastructure. We call that the coordination team. What that means is that someone makes it easy to do the improvement work. Those coordinating teams or that enabling infrastructure generally did four things. They created education programs for frontline clinicians. They coordinated project management. They provided data and feedback, and they had improvement science, whether it was Lean Sigma or whatever you want to call it. They supported the frontline clinicians. The third thing they did was they engaged clinicians and they connected them in peer learning communities. One important journey was this was migrating accountability from the responsibility was the infection prevention providers to say, no, no, it's the ICU directors and nurse managers and the people who work there are accountable and connecting those to other ICU leaders so we learn from each other. And finally, they reported transparently and they created accountability. What does that mean? Well, it means quite simply that if someone's infection rates weren't where they were supposed to be, a leader would question it, but they would do it in what we call shared leadership accountability. That is, the accountability wasn't designed to shame. 
what it meant was higher-level leaders would first hold themselves accountable for improvement efforts before they hold lower-level leaders. That is, a CEO would be first asked, did you maximally set those teams up to be successful? Do they know the goals and get the measures? Do they have the resources? Do they have the time? Do they have the skills? And only if that was yes, then they would move on to say, okay, now I see you, manager. What are we doing for this? But we found at a deeper level, this third level, the intrapersonal level, there was something even more powerful going on. There was a change in the mindset. There was a change in the story that these clinicians made, and that is what drove the new results. You see, when we went in and interviewed clinicians about what was different about this effort than the many other improvement efforts that we've been into, they told us two clear stories. Number one, they believed that they can get to zero. And number two, they belonged to learning communities. You all are probably aware of the power of beliefs and the story of Roger Bannister, who as a medical student in 1954 broke the four-minute mile. At the time, leading scientists said it is impossible to achieve that goal. You would die trying. But Bannister didn't believe them, and he broke that four-minute impossibility. And you may know that. But what you may not know is the next year, 12 more people broke that record. The next year, 156 people broke it. And the only thing that changed over those two years was their belief. Bannister freed up all of us for that possibility of achieving that goal. And individual doctors and nurses started freeing up belief in their hospitals that it was possible to eliminate infections. We also saw the key was belonging that the power of improvement wasn't extrinsic motivation or pay for quality or public reporting. It was connecting people in peer learning communities, one nurse learning from another, one doctor learning from a nurse, one hospital learning from another, which is why programs like this are absolutely so key for us to drive improvement. We will be the ones who improve it as clinicians and providers. The external reporting and public pay for these measures will be secondary. And ultimately, we learned in improvement science that change progresses at the speed of trust. And trust grows when people feel, and we have structures that allow us to do things with rather than to people. So at a national level, getting professional society leaders at the table to co-create solutions like you have all done. At a hospital, getting the diverse different ICU leaders or hospital leaders together to co-create solutions. It doesn't mean we're not accountable, but we use this metaphor of a fractal that is an eloquent structure in nature that allows us to create horizontal connections for peer learning, but also vertical connections for accountability. It's the way we organize our quality program at Johns Hopkins, and it's the way I would encourage you to think about driving use. So what might you do in your organization tomorrow to begin to improve or reduce harm from infections? Well, number one, declare and communicate goals. Yes, it is scary to say we're going to eliminate preventable deaths, we're going to eliminate harm from sepsis, we're going to eliminate clabsy or caudy or whatever you're working on, but it's the only way you will make progress. And get your senior executives to to declare and communicate goals also. 
Ensure your organization has an enabling infrastructure. What do I mean by that? Well, you have trust-building structures. You have a table or a meeting where people's voices are heard, that you can co-create solutions, that you have project management support and analytics and draw upon your improvement science. Your organizations have all of these skills within them. These aren't new bodies. They're just too often siloed, and we haven't broken down those silos, and you as leaders need to do that. We need to engage frontline clinicians and connect them in peer learning communities, whether that's learning communities within your hospital, within your town, within your country, within a global community. Begin to learn from each other. This is what we've seen when Spain replicated those results and had dramatic reduction, when Abu Dhabi replicated these CLABSI results, when Peru and Pakistan have all replicated these in CLABSI results. And finally, Make sure you have a mechanism to report transparently to both frontline staff and senior leaders and to create accountability mechanisms. Create mechanisms where you can have a conversation about where you're falling short and what you might do differently. But most importantly, make sure you as leaders communicate your belief in the staff that this is possible so that you will then infect those beliefs in others. You see, what we learned about driving improvement was really based on some of the research of a psychologist, Barbara Friedrichsen, who studies love. Her research shows that love isn't a 50-year marriage, but rather it's micro-moments of positive connection between two people. I feel warm towards you, you feel warm towards me, and we generate energy. We literally vibrate. And that feeling that connection is infectious. It spreads because we know that a big change is a thousand, made up of a thousand small ones facilitated by thousands of these little micro moments where nurse questions doctor, where we engage patients in their care, where we work together to solve these, these problems. And that, my friends, is what underlies all of improvement. So as you continue during this webinar, I'd ask you to reflect on how you might complete your I will statement. Because that question that Sorel King, the little girl's mother, asked me, what are you going to do differently? She is asking of every one of you. Thank you very much, and I think we might have time for a few questions. We have concentrated a lot, and we have come a long way in improving infection prevention and cancer prevention in hospitals. Now, how, what's the role of community in this part? How can we get the community get interested? And can, how can we get them to get their help in fight against infection and sepsis? Yes, yeah, so great, great question. And as you may have heard me mention, this idea that change progresses at the speed of trust and we need to engage all partners to help build that trust. So that's the community. And let's just explore what we might mean by that. Well, we are increasingly partnering with nursing home communities. Huge efforts there to um, reduce infections, to help with antimicrobial stewardship by partnering with them, with our primary care physicians, with our Patients, importantly, and one of the main things we're trying to do is to get patients engaged about asking about what your hospital infection rates are. You know, right now around the globe, there's some hospital infections, hospitals that have 10 times the rate of their ICU CLABSI than other hospitals. And there's very little accountability for that. 
we believe your the patients, your population and your communities could help drive that change so that we encourage them when they come into the hospital or in their care to ask, what are your infection rates? When they have any kind of catheter device, they could ask, do I still need this? Am I getting benefit out of it or could it be taking out? When you're doing procedures, you could ask, did you use a checklist for best practices? And I think by beginning to involve them in this dialogue, creating those micro moments with our patients, it was going to really move us a long way towards the goal of eliminating harm. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Paranakwal. Now I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Tamara Filipsfili, who is an epidemiologist at the Respiratory Disease Branch at the CDC. She has joined CDC 10 years ago, and since then has become a leading expert on vaccines for bacterial pathogens, particularly pneumococcal and hemophilic vaccines, and has led numerous studies on pneumococcal conjugate vaccine in the U.S. She's also a CDC led for the pneumococcal vaccine group of the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Dr. Pilipili will utilize her expertise today to enlighten us on the role of vaccination to protect from influenza and pneumonia. Dr. Tamara, it's here. Uh, thank you, um, and thank you for our conference organizers for this opportunity to speak to you on the role of vaccination to prevent uh, pneumonia. Uh, pneumonia contributes to significant morbidity and mortality worldwide. Uh, according to recent WHO estimates, 52% uh, of all deaths in children under age 5 uh, globally resulted from infectious diseases, with pneumonia being the leading infectious cause uh, of death. About 15% of deaths among children under 5 are attributed to pneumonia. And vaccines offer perhaps the best opportunity to, uh, for rapidly increasing uh, uh, child uh, survival. Among infants and children less than five years of age, uh, pneumonia causes more deaths than any other disease, nearly one million deaths every year or one death every 20 seconds. Uh, these pneumonia-related deaths uh, occur disproportionately in countries uh, of Africa and Southeast Asia. In fact, almost half of pneumonia deaths uh, occur in just five countries, India, and Pakistan, China, Nigeria, and uh, DRC. Well, many different pathogens cause pneumonia. Two bacterial pathogens, Streptococcus pneumonia and Haemophilus influenza type B or Hib, uh, are the most common causes, uh, and an estimated 400,000 and 200,000 deaths uh, occur attributed to these uh, pneumonia uh, deaths uh, due to these pathogens um, each year. RSV and influenza are the most common viral pathogens, and if you look across these pathogens, overall at least one-third of severe pneumonia episodes and two-thirds of deaths are caused by vaccine-preventable pneumonias, and these are pneumonias due to streptococcus pneumonia, haemophilus influenza, and, influ uh, and influenza virus. So uh, all three, uh, for all three against all three pathogens, we have currently uh, very effective uh, preventive measures available. Pneumococcal pneumonia also contributes to significant morbidity and mortality among adults, especially among the elderly. Uh, according to recent estimates of pneumococcal disease burden in the U.S., uh, pneumococcal infections contribute to 2.5 million outpatient visits, uh, almost half a million emergency department visits, and 400,000 hospitalizations among, among adults. And from all uh, pneumococcal syndromes, uh, pneumonia is the largest contributor of both emergency department visits and hospitalizations. 
Now, I mentioned that there's good news, and at least one-third of severe pneumonias and two-thirds of pneumonia-related deaths are caused by streptococcus pneumonia, haemophilus influenza, and influenza virus that are vaccine-preventable. For the sake of time, I will focus on pneumococcal conjugate vaccines and their contribution to preventing pneumonia. Uh, to date, there have been three formulations of pneumococcal conjugate vaccines licensed, a 7, 10, and 13 valent vaccine. Uh, currently licensed formulations pr protect against infec infections caused by 10 or 13 pneumococcal serotypes. Uh, this vaccine demonstrated uh, immunogenicity and efficacy in infants and adults. In children, uh, PCVs or con pneumococcal conjugate vaccines induce immunologic memory and therefore can be boosted. The seven-valid formulation, which is the earliest formulation license, has been available since 2000. And depending on the region and the formulation, a PCV can cover from anywhere from 70 to 80% of serotypes causing infections. For infants, uh, PCVs are being used uh, on various infant schedules depending on the country, um, uh, and uh, you can see that uh, there's uh, any schedules from 2 plus 1, 3 plus 0, or 3, 3 plus 1, both 3 or 4 dose schedules are being used in uh, various countries. Um, and also recently, uh, U.S. introduced P uh, the 13 valent conjugate vaccine for adults. Much progress has been made in terms of conjugate vaccine introductions globally, a, a large thanks to donors like uh, Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiative, also large thanks to a, a large amount of evidence that has accumulated that shows effectiveness of these uh, vaccines against invasive disease and pneumonia in different settings. Uh, through 2015, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine was introduced in 120 countries, and that is up from 54 countries in, 2000, in just 2010. The efficacy of conjugate vaccines and preventive pneumonia in children has been demonstrated through clinical trials in various regions of the world. Uh, the efficacy of this vaccine in preventing all-cause radiologically confirmed pneumonia ranges from no effect to 35%, and this variability is largely due to uh, non-specific outcome used here. Uh, this is not for against pneumococcal pneumonia, but rather all-cause chest X-ray confirmed pneumonia. And also the differences in how the chest X-ray confirmed pneumonia was defined may contribute to this variability from region to region, as well as the uh, contribution of pneumococcal infections to all-cause pneumonia may differ from region re to region, uh, and depending on the presence of underlying conditions, malnutrition. But overall evidence suggests that PCV prevents pneumococcal pneumonia. Studies using administrative hospitalization data have demonstrated the impact of PCV introduction on all-cause pneumonia as well as pneumonias coded as pneumococcal. One example is a study conducted by Grijalva and colleagues that demonstrated significant reduction in all-cause as well as pneumococcal pneumonias among children when comparing pneumonia hospitalizations before and after uh, seven-valent conjugate vaccine introduction in the U.S. In addition, reductions among adults were also noted, and this is uh, in a setting where adults were not receiving conjugate vaccines, so the effect was purely uh, indirect or so-called so herd effect through reduced transmission of pneumococcal uh, infections from vaccinated children to unvaccinated adults. 
The strongest evidence of PCV impact comes from studies using laboratory-confirmed surveillance for invasive pneumococcal infections. Uh, one example is the active bacterial core surveillance in the U.S., which tracks invasive pneumococcal infections since 1998 and includes uh, serotyping of pneumococcal isolates. And using this surveillance system shortly after the seven-valent vaccine was introduced in the U.S. in late 2000, sharp reductions in overall invasive infections were observed. Having pneumococcal serotype information allows us to document that these reductions occurred specifically among infections caused by the seven serotypes included in the vaccine. In 2010, a new 13-valent formulation of PCV was introduced, which led to additional declines in invasive disease. These reductions were observed in the vaccine primary target age group of children under five, but also among adults who at the time were not receiving uh, conjugate vaccines. So the reductions in adult disease were due to purely indirect or hard effects of PCV use in children. Invasive pneumococcal pneumonia caused by serotypes included in a 13-valent uh, vaccine declined significantly by almost 50%, and this is data from the U.S. that showed reduction of almost 50% among adults of all age groups after the 13-valent vaccine was introduced for use in children in 2010 in the U.S. So all the impact on adult disease burden I showed has been through indirect of or herd effects of PCV use among children. Despite these dramatic reductions, the vaccine-preventable burden among adults still remains high. And because of that, in 2014, uh, the results of a large clinical trial demonstrating efficacy of PCV13 in preventing pneumococcal disease among adults were released. This was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial among 85,000 adults uh, 65 years or older in Netherlands, and the results showed that PCV13 is very effective in, pre effective in preventing both invasive pneumococcal disease as well as non-bacteremic pneumonia caused by these uh, vaccine serotype pneumococcus. 75% efficacy against vaccine-type invasive disease and 45% efficacy against vaccine-type non-bacteremic pneumonia was shown. And the results of this trial led to a U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices decision in 2015 to introduce PCV13 for routine use among adults 65 years or older. And this recommendation was made in late 2015. And lastly, I wanted to say a couple of words about the relationship between influenza and pneumococcal disease. There is evidence from studies conducted during the influenza pandemic that influenza predisposes individuals to secondary bacterial pneumonia. Uh, specifically, pneumococcus was uh, identified in around 50% of secondary bacterial pneumonia cases and 20% death during 1918 uh, pandemic flu. Uh, pneumococcal vaccines were not available during any of the 20th century pandemics. And during 2009 H1N1 pandemic in the U.S., 43% of H1N1-related deaths among children were associated with bacterial co-infections, and pneumococcus was the predominant cause of these infections. Therefore, as you can see, pneumococcal vaccines may play a role in reducing morbidity and mortality during the pandemic by preventing secondary pneumo uh, pneumococcal infections.
And in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of uh, over 37,000 fully immunized infants, and this is a study that was done in Soweto, South Africa, a nine-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine prevented 31% of pneumonias associated with any of the seven respiratory viruses in children. And this efficacy estimate was statistically significant. These data suggest that the pneumococcus has a major role in the development of pneumonia associated with these viruses and the viruses contribute to the pathogenesis of uh, bacterial pneumonia. And in conclusion, um, vaccine-preventable pneumonia contributes to significant morbidity and mortality worldwide. Pneumococcal conjugate vaccines have reduced morbidity and mortality of pneumonia in children and among adults also through indirect and herd effects. Further reductions may be expected through PCV use among adults. And PCVs may reduce morbidity and mortality associated with viral respiratory infection, including pandemic influenza. And I would like to add, end by uh, showing, uh, reminding everyone that uh, World Pneumonia Day is coming up. It's in no November uh, 12th. Uh, World Pneumonia Day was established in 2009, and it's uh, celebrated every year, marked every year on November 12th. Uh, the idea is to raise awareness about pneumonia, the world's leading killer of children under age of five, to promote interventions to, that protect against or treat pneumonia, and to generate action to combat pneumonia. I, I invite everyone to um, go to the link that is uh, on, the, on this slide and uh, join in our efforts to uh, fight pneumonia. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Pesky, for this very informative talk. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Professor Didier Piquet, who is a worldwide figure on infection prevention. Professor Piquet and his team introduced the famous Geneva hand model, and he also developed the, or the team developed the five moments in hand hygiene, the impact of which is evident worldwide. Professor Piquet is currently the director of the Section Control Program and the WHO Collaborating Center on Patient Safety at the University of Geneva in Switzerland. He's a lead advisor of the WHO Clean Care and Safer Care, and he's a recipient of several national and international honors. Dr. Piquet will talk today on Clean Care and Safer Care. Dr. Piquet. Thank you very much. Clean Care is Safer Care, and it is the opportunity to speak about nosocomial sepsis. Welcome to the hospital. Infections are waiting for you at the entrance door of the hospital, and unfortunately could complicate your hospital stay. But what is the burden of disease? The burden of disease is huge because at least half a million patients get infections each day in hospitals only. And this is very key. If you want two key numbers, hospital infections, we are talking about half a million patients every day. And we are talking about 16 million deaths every year in the world. And as everybody knows, infections are not only the place are very modern healthcare settings. They are also in very modern healthcare settings, whatever be the type of healthcare settings. Importantly, however, no hospital, no country, no healthcare system in the world can claim to have solved the problem. That's why I like to call as healthcare-associated infection and consider them as a silent pandemic. Everybody knows about healthcare-associated infections. Nobody speaks about it openly. By chance, we have a cure. 
And this cure we all know is hand hygiene. Hand washing as we used to say, but today we need to say hand hygiene. But unfortunately, as you know, the compliance of healthcare workers with hand hygiene procedures is unfortunately less than 40% in most of the studies that were conducted and summarized uh, in a paper that was published in 2010. And nowadays, the average is a little bit better, but not so much. The question is why? The question is why? And that's the question we asked ourselves many years ago at the University of Geneva Hospitals. And to make a long story short, you know our results. On a, a large epidemiological study that we conducted, we could demonstrate that the more the number of opportunities for nurses to clean their hands, the less the compliance. And for the nurses working in critical care, there was actually an average of 22 opportunities per hour of patient care to do hand hygiene. And at that time, the major way to wash hands was to use soap and water, and hand washing with soap and water does actually take time. It does take time. It takes between 1 and 1.5 minutes to wash hands with soap and water. That was the reason why, in 1994, we recommended to switch and to go for a system change whereby we would propose to replace soap and water hand washing by the use of alcohol-based hand rubbing that takes only 15 to 20 seconds uh, to do and that is a lot more efficient and better tolerated for hands. This is what we call at that time system change. You change the system, you replace soap and water hand washing by the use of alcohol-based hand rubbing. And actually, this is what we did. We started to use an alcohol-based pocket hand rub. We gave very simple instructions at the University of Geneva how to actually recognize indication for hand hygiene, and we started a campaign. The next question is, would it work? Would it really make a difference only to apply a system change? The answer is no. To change behavior, you need a multimodal behavior change strategy. And this is exactly what we applied at the University of Geneva starting in 1995. And you probably are very aware of our results published in the Lancet in the year 2000, where you can see the increase is in hand hygiene compliance over time, mostly due to an increased recourse in alcohol-based hand rubbing. At the same time, we could demonstrate over a four-year study period a reduction in healthcare-associated infection that was around 50% for we reduced by half the incidence of healthcare-associated infection. And last but not least, we could also demonstrate after eight years of the campaign the cost-effectiveness of the strategy. These uh, experience was then repeated. It was called in the literature following the publication in the Lancet. It was called the Geneva Model of Hand Hygiene Promotion. It was reproduced with success between 2002 and 2005 in single hospitals in different countries, in multiple hospitals, as well as in national promotion programs. 
And in 2005, the World Health Organization asked us whether, through the promotion of best practices in hand hygiene and infection control, launching the first Global Patient Safety Challenge could be a way to reduce healthcare-associated infections worldwide. And the program was named Clean Care is Safer Care and was launched actually from WHO headquarters uh, on the 13th of October 2005. In this program, we ask for the commitment of ministries of health. We ask ministries of health to sign a pledge, a pledge that by which ministries of health will recognize the importance of healthcare-associated infection, would actually apply strategies that were recommended by WHO, and would actually continue to uh, do health hygiene promotion program in their country. Today, between 2005 and 2016, more than 140 countries are now committed to address healthcare-associated infection in many, many different parts of the world. In order to apply the strategy, we develop guidelines, new guidelines based on evidence associated with a tool, uh, a set of tools that are available and in implementation toolkit. You are all aware of the fact that this multimodal strategy is a five-mode multimodal uh, implementation strategy with system change, training and education, evaluation and feedback, reminders in the workplace, and institutional safety climate. Uh, among the tools that we developed is the My Five Moment for Hand Hygiene, very well known, used all over the world, which has been translated in many different languages but it has also been adapted, adapted uh, in different colors, adapted in different countries. Suddenly and soon, Playmobil in Argentina, Olaf in Germany, and actually Hello Kitty in Japan were promoting hand hygiene, and it was very successful all over the world. And this is very important because it means adapt to adopt. If you want people to adopt a new strategy, let them adapt the new strategy. For those interested, I gave a TED talk on the topic, adapt to adopt, that can be actually reached by this teenyurl.com adapt to adopt, really insisting on the fact that if you want people to change behavior, they need really to be able to adapt your strategy uh, for a better adoption. We also published this famous hand hygiene uh, video in the New England Journal of Medicine. The New England Journal of Medicine actually just published uh, the 20 past years on the, the social media uh, that they use, and the video, this video has been the most viewed video by, uh, the, on the New England Journal of Medicine. This is the only video that is kept for free by the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is also a video that we could translate it in many different languages, and that is now available from the WHO website in many different languages for those interested. As you can understand, we have evidence of successful implementation of the strategy worldwide in actually uh, from modern healthcare settings to settings with very limited resources in a very multicultural environment, and this is very important for those who are familiar with our strategy. 
We needed also to ensure a universal system change in a spirit of equity and solidarity. And for this, we actually gave to WHO not only the formulation, but also the recipe of how to do the formulation at a local level. Here is actually the guide for the local production of the license-free WHO alcohol-based hand rub formulation that is made in Mali, for example, out of sugar cane using the leftover of uh, the sugar cane that you can harvest. And recently, uh, during the Ebola uh, outbreak, the Ebola epidemic, we actually went to Morovia in Liberia and produced alcohol-based hand rub locally in order to fa facilitate the fight against this terrible disease, actually this terrible uh, Ebola outbreak that we had and we and others had to help support it. Importantly, since 2014, the alcohol-based hand rub is within the list of the WHO essential medicine list, and this is very, very key. A campaign to be uh, universal should be adaptable and sustained, and that's the reason why we have country running national campaigns all over the world, and those country campaigns are extremely important. This is also why we have organized the uh, 5th of May initiative. This is the WHO Save Lives, Clean Your Hands. This is every 5th of May of the year, every year, uh, that WHO is bringing people together to improve and sustain hand hygiene. And this is extremely important. We encourage all of you to join us in this initiative, which is so important for our patients all over the world. We are now celebrating the 10 years of the campaign, and this is very, very important with great success. Among our visions and perspectives are the patients, of course. The patients should always remain at the very center of the debate, at the very center of the initiative, uh, and it is very important for those interested. We published a paper in the proceedings of uh, the Mayo Clinics uh, in 2010, and we published a paper last week in the Lancet Infectious Disease, insisting on the importance and the role of patient participation into hand hygiene promotion. Importantly, we also get the privilege to have an author writing a book on the campaign for those interested clean hands, save lives. It is available on Amazon. It is available in libraries. You can find it in many different languages. It was published in six different languages in 2014, and now it's available according to the economy of peace in more than 15 languages. We also have the, the privilege to have a, a producer of a movie who came to us and followed us for three years and produced the movie Clean Ants that, is, that will be uh, soon on many, many TV screens. Importantly, every year uh, we try to mobilize using social media campaign, which is very important. Safe Hands is a, a, a suggestion. And we have a global reach that is extremely important through social media. The global reach in 2015 was almost 55 million people. The next year, this year, in 2016, we said, let's join hands for safe surgical care. And actually, we got people from all around the world uh, participating in this campaign. We promoted the campaign very, very actively. And our global reach, we, got, we received more than 15,000 photos from all over the world, from more than 100 countries. And as you can see, there were many, many, many photos from all over the place. And the global reach of the campaign was 98 million. 
importantly adapt to adopt once again but if you want people to adapt to adopt let them be creative and for these in the we have we have uh, this hand hygiene excellence center in Hong Kong who actually initiated the hand sanitizing relay Guinness World Record in 2014. And this is really very uh, attractive with 166. But encouraged by these, not only they beat it, they obtained a new Guinness World Record, but they actually could demonstrate that hand hygiene compliance could be improved between before and after the exercise of doing this hand sanitizing relay. I will encourage all of you to read the publication. Uh, in 2015, we thus recommended all over the world for people to join and try to perform a hand sanitizing relay. It was done. For those interested, you can access a video where we recommend doing this type of relay that has been very popular and that has helped people to really participate into hand hygiene promotion. The global hand sanitizing relay was conducted in more than 130 hospitals in more than 40 uh, countries from all around the world, was very successful all over the world, and actually in hospitals who succeeded, we could demonstrate in most of them an improvement in compliance, and the one who got the world Guinness World Record with 660 participants were our colleagues from Iran. For those interested, I will encourage all of you to actually uh, access our Facebook account and actually follow the activities of our group because it's the only way by working together that we can succeed worldwide. And last but not least, for those interested, please follow us on our uh, Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts or access the WHO website or the www.cleanhandssavelife.org. With that, I would like to thank you all for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Prof. Pitay, for the impressive work. That's really impressive. And uh, uh, I have uh, just a question. I don't know. I mean, of course, you might be um, aware of the pharmaceutical companies. Is there anything coming up uh, to be more uh, sporocidal against C. diff and bacillus species? Are you aware of anything coming in terms of... Um, any any uh, agent? You mean in terms of hand hygiene? Hand hygiene, yes. We don't have any serious problem with any bacteria. There is no resistance to alcohol. Alcohol works in every situation except when hands are sold. Now, for uh, Clostridium difficile, as you may uh, recall, there is absolutely no product that works on Clostridium difficile that you can apply on your hands. So the, 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 the infection control recommendation in this case is actually the, the appropriate handling of the patient using contact precaution for every uh, case of Clostridium difficile. In our institution, we don't suffer outbreaks of Clostridium difficile. We usually recommend to continue using alcohol-based hand rub, but only after glo before gloving and after degloving, and to have a perfect use of uh, gloves. In situations where you have an outbreak of Clostridium difficile, uh, you may consider switching to prolonged uh, hand washing with actually any soap, and some institutions would even recommend 
hand washing followed by the use of alcohol-based hand rub. But of course, at the, uh, at, uh, after some time, it would be a little hard for your hands. Um, I have a question here from one of the audience, and it's, I think it's worth mentioning. He's asking, will soap water can be used uh, as a hand wash uh, when there is, uh, uh, the, the alcohol hand rub is not available? So probably maybe we need to uh, make people aware of that. The question is, will soap water be, can soap water be used as a hand wash uh, when alcohol rub is not available? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, there's no question. You can use uh, soap and water with regular soap. You can use uh, uh, even water alone. It, it works. It is less efficient, and it takes more time, and it is not as good for the hands. We need to move, move on. I would like to introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Benedict Algranzi, uh, who is a professor of infection disease with great interest and work on infection prevention and control. She currently works at the WHO as a technical lead of the Infection Prevention and Control Global Unit, including clean care, etc. care program. She's also involved in the leadership on the WHO Ebola response in the field of infection prevention and control, IPC. Dr. Aaron Granzi will talk on new WHO global guidelines for the prevention of surgical site infections and their implementation in resource-limited settings. Dr. Aaron Granzi. Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm really honored to be with you today to discuss uh, about another topic in terms of uh, prevention of sepsis and, in particular, surgical site infections, uh, which, as you can certainly understand, can cause sepsis, in particular nosocomial or healthcare-associated sepsis. And to highlight the new global uh, guidelines from WHO and in particular aspects related to low resource settings. So I lead the new WHO infection prevention and control global unit at WHO. Our vision is uh, to achieve protection of patients and health workers' lives across the world through excellence in infection prevention and control. And SSI is one of the key uh, topics we have been focusing on over the last uh, few years. And uh, the main reason is uh, the work we have undertaken on the burden of SSI over the last few years, uh, as you may know from our publications. Um, in particular, um, you may know in general about HAIs, which have been mentioned several times in this session, that, for instance, in Europe, according to recent uh, uh, ECDC data, um, about 80,000 hospitalized patients every day are affected by this type of infections. In terms of SSI, these are, according to ECDC, the second most frequent type of HAI uh, in Europe, uh, accounting for about 20% of HAIs uh, overall. And uh, it was estimated that in Europe recently, in 2011, uh, there have been about uh, uh, 550,000 uh, episodes of uh, uh, SSI. Regarding the U.S., similarly, we have data from different sources, in particular from CDC, 
which explain that uh, uh, the average uh, rate is uh, recently around 1%, but this may change depending on the type of procedure, and also um, that this is the second most uh, frequent type of HAI in, uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, as well. Um, and they are the most frequent type of HAI on admission among all types of HAI. Um, surgical sepsis accounts for approximately 30% of all septic patients, and SSI regarding low-middle-income countries are the most frequent type of uh, um, HAI, and the rates are significantly higher than in high-income countries. Indeed, the work I mentioned earlier was published around 2011 in several publications, including a Lancet uh, uh, paper and also a WHO report documenting, as I said, the higher um, um, incidence of SSI in low-middle-income countries. And we recently updated the meta-analysis we published. And as you can see here, um, there are... Uh, variations depending on countries, but incredibly high rates, for instance, in obstetrics, uh, I'm talking about C-sections, uh, up to 23% in Brazil, for instance. In high-income countries, you may know that uh, the SSI wound infection in C-section is about 2%. Um, so... Um, our update of the meta-analysis that you can see here, and I'm sorry because I'm afraid the slides are not uh, exactly the same as they were on my screen, but anyway, um, you can see this is the meta-analysis of incidence rates uh, for low-middle-income countries, and we have 7.2 per 100 surgical procedures in low-middle-income countries when in high-income countries these rates range between 1% and maximum 4%, so very high rates. So prevention of SSI is very complex. You can see on this slide that uh, there are many factors that need to be controlled in order to eventually prevent SSI. However, this is possible. So you can see that uh, in Europe, uh, between 2008 and 2012, um, in European countries, uh, prevention has been successful, in particular, in reducing, uh, for instance, uh, uh, colon rectal surgery SSI, or even coronary artery bypass graft SSI, or hip uh, uh, prosthesis uh, infections. Uh, the same was documented for the U.S. recently in a very recent report, 2016, uh, um, uh, related to comparisons between 2014 and 2008 data, which show uh, an overall decrease of 17% uh, in the 10 most uh, frequent type of uh, procedures. So reduction of SSI by preventing prevention strategies is possible. Uh, so this is the, this is these are the main reasons why uh, WHO actually uh, focused on this topic over the last few years, conducting work on the burden of disease, especially for low middle income countries, but also uh, developing global guidelines. Uh, um, we have conducted. Um, 
27 systematic reviews and meta-analyses and finally came up with uh, 29 new recommendations about SSI prevention, which will be issued and launched in uh, October, uh, twen in October up upcoming this year. So uh, these global guidelines are unprecedented because they have a global perspective meaning that the recommendations are meant to apply to any countries uh, with, of course, some adaptations depending on the resources available and other aspects. The population of targeted is patients of any age undergoing any type of surgical procedure, and the target audience uh, is the surgical team primarily, but also IPC colleagues, uh, policymakers, senior managers, uh, hospital administrations, as well as those responsible for staff education and training. These guidelines were developed by an international uh, group of experts uh, taking into account geographic and gender balance uh, and also including many professional groups, surgeons, nurses, IPC specialists, uh, anesthesiologists, and even patient representatives. So a range of topics were identif identified by these experts um, at the beginning of the process. Uh, about uh, 30 topics uh, were identified for systematic reviews and for potential recommendations. And as I said, 27 systematic reviews at the end were conducted between December 2013 and October 2015. Uh, through many uh, databases, all main uh, most important databases for uh, systematic reviews and uh, uh, scientific publication searches. Um, the, according to the process that WHO requires uh, to develop uh, evidence-based uh, recommendations, uh, uh, quality assessment of the single studies retrieved was conducted according to the Cochrane collaboration tools. Uh, um, and uh, also, overall, uh, the, the, the quality of the, of the evidence was graded according to the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation grade. So many meta-analyses, more than 100 meta-analyses were conducted throughout these reviews. And uh, based on the evidence, the quality of the evidence and the strength of the evidence, as well as on expert consensus, these recommendations were developed as either strong, which means that the expert panel was confident that benefits outweighed the risks uh, entailed into the recommendations, and these recommendations that are strong are considered to be adaptable for implementation in most, if not all, situations, and patients should receive this intervention as course of action. Conditional recommendations mean that the panel considered the benefits of the intervention probably outweighed the risk, and that the process of deciding whether implementing the recommendation is more complex needs to be undertaken and based on stakeholders' consultation and involvement of patients and healthcare professionals. So now I'm not entitled to really let you know what are the recommendations yet, because the document is not launched by WHO uh, yet. But I would like to let you know that the, the recommendations, as I said, are 29. Nine of them are strong, 
and 20 are conditional. The strong recommendations pertain uh, the, the following topics. The colonization with mupirocin, uh, with or without chloroxidin body wash for the prevention of S. aureus infections in nasal carriers undergoing surgery, in particular orthopedic and cardiothoracic surgery. Second, mechanical bowel preparation and the use of oral antibiotics. The next one is about hair removal, basically avoiding hair removal or using clipping. The next one, which is very important, is about optimal timing for administration of surgical antibiotic prophylaxis, which is uh, certainly pre-operative, pre-incision, but now we have uh, assessed through meta-analysis that it should be within 120 minutes and not 60 minutes overall. Um, surgical hand preparation, of course, uh, either by antimicrobial soap or uh, alcohol-based and wraps. Uh, surgical site preparation, which ideally should be uh, done by alcohol-based antiseptic, antiseptic solutions uh, uh, containing chlorhexidine gluconate. Perioperative oxygenation, this is another one that is strong, and also the last one, avoiding anti antibiotic prophylaxis uh, prolongation after surgery. So these are the strong recommendations, and I would like to invite you to certainly check on uh, uh, the WHO website, which I'll show you at the end, and uh, um, download the document as soon as av available in uh, uh, October, and also uh, hopefully read a two Lancet infectious diseases papers which we have submitted to the journal. Now, to conclude, a couple of considerations for implementation in low resource settings and also a practical example of pilot testing we conducted. So these important considerations about the recommendations implementation in low resource settings are the following. Some recommendations will certainly not be resource demanding, and this is why they are valid for all countries, all settings. Or they will even allow avoidance of unnecessary costs. For instance, no antibiotic prophylaxis prolongation reduces the costs. There is a, another recommendation on avoiding using or recommending laminar flow system for ventilation in the OR, which will reduce uh, uh, costs for buildings. Some recommendations will contribute to reducing AMR, and so this is an important aspect, but also this means that they will reduce the costs involved in AMR. For others, however, careful evaluation should be made about potential additional costs involved or limited product availability. I'm talking about uh, alcohol-based and wraps, chlorhexidine gluconate, alcohol-based antiseptic solutions, uh, need for staff training or specific expertise, for instance, in managing oxygenation, glucose control, normovolemia. These are not always available in low-middle-income countries. Need for technical laboratory capacity, for instance, I mentioned the, the recommendation on S. aureus carrier identification, which involves then the decolonization, and we know that high-quality laboratory microbiology um, capacity is not always or rarely available in low-middle-income countries. 
Some recommendations might involve organizational resources for appropriate administration, for instance, uh, organizing for respecting antibiotic timing, reuse and contamination risks. Uh, for instance, uh, clippers uh, are often reused in low-middle-income countries, and there is a need for taking care of this process of correct the contamination. And also some infrastructure constraints, sometimes even access to clean water is limited in low resource settings. And, but finally, we also would like to highlight that local production and local adapted solutions uh, are possible. There are many examples and these should be encouraged. So just uh, uh, one more uh, note on, on a project which we implemented in uh, four countries in Africa in five hospitals, which involves uh, the implementation of some of these recommendations. Uh, um, this program is called uh, uh, Surgical Unit-Based uh, uh, Safety Program. We uh, we uh, combined uh, the patient safety climate improvement uh, approach, which Peter Pronovost very well explained to all of us today, with a number of infection prevention best practices which were identified by the users, by the surgical team and others. So this was also combined with safe surgery checklist. So our colleagues implemented this process uh, and this program uh, aimed at improving patient safety climate and reducing SSI and surgical complications. So um, we adapted a number of tools which were available from the U.S., from the John Hopkins University um, and School of Medicine, and, and also there were some products or some posters or uh, training tools adapted locally, and you can see in my slide that there is a video which is uh, the replication and adaptation of Peter Pronovost's video on safety climate, which was uh, done by surgeon uh, leads in this project. So uh, you can see uh, that the results were uh, outstanding of this uh, program based on the approach I mentioned with improvement of all uh, preventive measures, which we measured uh, through compliance uh, indicators, and eventually uh, an overall 44% reduction of SSI-adjusted rates with a reduction of crude rates from 8 to 4%. Uh, uh, and also, this program is now embedded in the normal management of surgical uh, work in these hospitals, and they demonstrated that the reduction of SSI can be uh, sustained uh, up to 33% reduction after one year. So this is a demonstration that SSI prevention, although it's complex, can be achieved in low-resource settings. And I would like to thank you very much for your uh, attendance to this conference, and um, I hand over again to the chair. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Cassidy. That was really excellent. Uh, uh, I don't know if I missed something regarding the uh, post-surgery surveillance or post-discharge surveillance. Can you briefly comment on that? Yes. So surveillance is of uh, high importance in SSI prevention. Several studies uh, 
from Europe mainly uh, showed that even only surveillance of surgical site infections can contribute significantly to the reduction of this type of infections. In our guidelines, uh, uh, the expert panel decided not to select surveillance as one of the potential topics for formal, formal recommendations. So there was no systematic review conducted, but still there is a chapter dedicated to surveillance of SSI where we show clearly that surveillance is important, why it is important, how data should be used, and the fact that uh, uh, hospitals and uh, surgical units should, be, should make any possible effort to conduct surveillance. For the study I uh, showed uh, from Africa, uh, we have worked uh, on an adapted protocol for surveillance of SSI in low resource settings, uh, which will be available uh, in October as well on our website. So this can be done with a lot of effort. I recognize this, but it can also be done in low middle income countries. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, now, it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Deborah Cook, who is a professor of medicine, clinical epidemiology, and biostatistics, and academic chair of critical care at McMaster University in Canada. She's a Canada research chair and former chair of Canadian critical care trials group. Dr. Cook has received numerous national and international awards for her practice, teaching, and research. Dr. Cook will present to us today preventing VAP and C. difficile infections. Thank you. Good afternoon or morning or evening, wherever you are. Um, I was asked to speak about uh, VAP and Clostridium difficile, two interesting infections, one very common about which there is a lot written on prevention, and the other much less common, Clostridium difficile, but uh, potentially extremely serious. The idea about prevention is primary prevention involves preventing for the very first time and much of the randomized trials in the field of critical care focus on primary prevention for VAP. However, there are more uh, secondary prevention trials which are recent that are relevant for Clostridium difficile. So I plan to spend some time on them as well. Important context for ICU practitioners is the advent and promotion and dissemination of concepts relating to the microbiome. So this is defined as the ecological community of commensal, symbiotic, and potentially pathogenic microorganisms that are in us or on us. They may be uh, fungi, bacteria, viruses. Microbiota refers to the organism's microbiome, however, is a specific term relating to the collective genomes, and we are outnumbered 10 to 1 at least, uh, microbial versus human cells, and from the gene point of view, over 100 uh, to 1 by other organisms. Microbiome and the microbiota comprise up to 3% of our body weight, and up until recently, there was a lot of debate about whether our immune system is controlling or trying to keep microorganisms in us or on us at bay, or whether the other way around is actually true that microorganisms influence our health. And this concept, in part, uh, produced the Human Microbiome Project uh, funded in NIH for about $115 uh, 
million to try to examine this a little bit more carefully. Of relevance to critical care is the notion that our microbiome and its diversity seems to be correlated with better health, and this is true in animals and in humans. And the so-called modern lifestyle influenced by a few uh, things here such as formula feeding and fastidious hand hygiene and indoor living and whatnot, um, these things actually influence the microbiome, but relevant particularly to critical care is antibiotics and the achlorhydria of critical illness, perhaps exacerbated by proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers, may also change the microbiome. So patients come into the ICU with infections and then critical illness itself, even if people are not admitted with infections, uh, our microbiome is modified in our patients. And the notion has arisen that perhaps not only are patients' microbiomes modified by being critically ill, but maybe we can modify the microbiome to help restore their health and attenuate disease and not just infectious disease. So on to preventing VAP, let's uh, just start with the mouth. Uh, it's well known that there are an extremely large number of uh, types of bacteria uh, in our mouth, obviously in our gums and teeth, and dental plaque is, is a, an amazing reservoir of a large number of, of bugs. We know that we all um, aspirate, uh, some of us a lot, uh, when we're sleeping, and even with a cup of the endotracheal tube up, there is microaspiration going on all the time. We have the biofilm of endotracheal tubes, which also predispose to colonization, contamination, possibly infection in the form of tracheobronchitis um, and VAP. And some work has been done on toothbrushing and oral hygiene. So just starting with a low-technology intervention, the randomized trials evaluating uh, toothbrushing and critical illness are portrayed here in the forest plot. Not too many uh, trials, um, and you can see there's no significant um, effect of toothbrushing on the prevention of VAP. But just this uh, meta-analysis does acknowledge the very important potential reservoir uh, that may predispose uh, to VAP in the fact we need more work on this. Uh, a more high-tech approach, subglottic secretion drainage, to pick another example, has also been studied with its uh, potential to reduce evaporates, and there have been several meta-analyses. This is the most recent, uh, suggesting maybe about a 45% relative risk reduction in uh, pneumonia with the use of the subglottic secretion drainage endotracheal tubes versus so-called standard endotracheal tubes. And Many of the trials in this field are relatively modest in sample size, and uh, you can see the event rates also can be quite low. Uh, an interesting uh, take on interventions is um, probiotics. Actually, ironically, these are bacteria. The WHO definition of probiotics commercially available microorganisms, which when ingested as individual or combination of strains, offer potential health benefits to the host. So probiotics are not exactly a drug. This is not a very specific definition, um, but probiotics have been proposed to uh, generate health benefits through a large number of mechanisms, potentially simply by re-inoculating the gut with indigenous um, microflora, which could be healthy, by colonization resistance, which is an important concept in infectious disease, by inhibition of um, translocation, potentially from the gut, improving gut barrier function through mucus production, 
and another large number of mechanisms that have been observed in animals and in humans um, but not studied all that well in the critically ill population. A Cochrane review of probiotics uh, suggested that there may be about a 30% reduction in VAP uh, associated with probiotic exposure and this could be shown in children and in adults and with any number of different types of probiotics, um, not so much the, the Saccharomyces, but other, other bugs. This uh, colorful slide here just shows you the risk of bias, which is reflective, I would say, of many of the randomized trials in this area where the low risk of bias features in, in green uh, indicate aspects of the trial methodology which are, are first rate and others less so. So many of the trials that I've been referring to um, could be of, of uh, greater quality and could be more rigorous, but these are the best data that we have. Just a couple of weeks ago, a meta-analysis was published summarizing the probiotic and symbiotic uh, therapeutic interventions, symbiotics uh, being a combination of prebiotics, often fiber uh, and probiotic together, uh, again, just suggesting this uh, reduction in infection associated with uh, VAP of about 25% relative risk reduction. So this is another example of a low-cost intervention that may be helpful, and it could be, based on another recent RCT, that potentially pathogenic microorganisms may be reduced by the re-inoculation of uh, so-called healthy bacteria in uh, critically ill patients. And there's a large uh, study going on now by the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group of 2,600-odd patients to examine whether this is, uh, in fact, true. I'd like to draw your attention to a cost-benefit analysis based on the observational data and trial data available to date. Uh, this Markov model uh, modeled many different types of alternative VAP prevention strategies to estimate the potential cost and benefit of adopting some or several. And the strategies with the best cost-benefit ratio based on data to date were the um, endotracheal tubes I just mentioned, the oral care I just mentioned, sometimes involves uh, chlorhexidine, uh, and probiotics based on the totality of the data. But I would encourage everybody to read uh, some other VAP prevention guidelines, several of which exist. And I know our Canadian source has uh, about 21 different statements, recommendations, uh, or lack thereof about additional strategies. So, for example, oral tracheal versus nasal intubation, um, new circuits for each new patient, closed endotracheal suction systems, uh, using head-of-the-bed elevation, etc. So there's much more to say about this. But I'll move on to the second outcome, Clostridium difficile. And as we know, one of the greatest sources of bacteria in Atheronis is actually in our gut. And C. diff as a carrier state uh, doesn't necessarily involve diarrhea, but as an infection, uh, most of the definitions available do include uh, three loose uh, stools, and the Bristol stool chart seems to be the most well-validated uh, instrument for use in, in critical care. Many ICUs around the world are characterizing stools uh, this way, and um, a CDI infection is uh, usually, unless there's toxic megacolon or profound ileus, uh, does require type 6 or type 7 uh, stool. 
It's of interest that probiotics for antibiotic-associated diarrhea have been summarized in children and in adults, whereby trials enrolling patients to receive any probiotic versus placebo with the outcome of antibiotic-associated diarrhea um, leads to a shocking number of uh, nearly 12,000 patients being randomized and a suggestion of about a 40% relative risk reduction in antibiotic-associated diarrhea, an outcome we don't talk about that much in the ICU because diarrhea is fairly common and so many of our patients receive antibiotics, as you have just been hearing about. But this estimate seems to hold whether we're talking about older or younger patients and uh, regardless of the genus and sometimes the species of bacteria and the setting. More to the point now, um, antibiotic-associated diarrhea that is actually Clostridium difficile-associated diarrhea has also been studied in a large number of randomized trials summarized in this meta-analysis enrolling almost 4,000 patients. And here... The suggestion is about a 65% relative risk reduction in Clostridium difficile with the use of probiotics. And these um, these estimates, like all estimates from all meta-analysis, need to be taken with a, a grain of, of salt. And uh, the, the signal, however, does seem to be um, fairly strong, and the measure is robust to different assumptions and different patients and different species, et cetera. What has um, become very interesting, back to this microbiome concept, is whether or not the transplantation of microbiota from healthy persons would actually be helpful for secondary prevention for Clostridium difficile. And there now are, um, uh, in fact, synthetic stool products available for um, rectal implantation or delivered by the nasogastric tube. So there's a great amount of interest in whether or not frozen or uh, fresh or thawed microbiota transplantation might help to reduce the recurrence of Clostridium difficile in patients for whom it is quite serious. And uh, this particular uh, trial does suggest that um, for persons who have refractory uh, Clostridium difficile infection, it appears that uh, frozen um, microbiota is not inferior to fresh microbiota or fecal transplantation, which is important in trying to further develop this concept. And as you know, there are several uh, studies in other GI conditions showing that uh, fecal transplantation can be helpful for secondary prevention of C. diff. There's also been an interesting three-arm RCT, a uh, fairly small study, um, testing whether or not, in addition to oral vancomycin, whether bowel lavage and nasogastric infusion of, of donor feces or bowel lavage alone has any impact on the secondary prevention. And although this trial was indeed small and stopped early, um, it does, does seem as though the um, infusion of donor feces uh, enhanced the microbiome diversity and indeed the uh, the cure rates were uh, well received uh, associated with the um, additional fecal load. And finally, uh, fidaxomycin, which is a more specific antibiotic uh, that uh, has been evaluated in a non-inferiority inferiority RCT, has also been tested against vancomycin, and it does seem as though 
um, the fedoxamycin is not inferior to oral vancomycin and may be associated with less recurrence and more of a so-called global cure. And uh, this indeed is quite promising because, as we know, uh, severe and recurrent C. diff is uh, extremely high morbidity and mortality. So uh, the microbiome is an extremely interesting uh, field under rapid development now internationally, and we are beginning to understand that it is modified in critical illness, but we in turn may be able to modify the microbiome of critical illness through preventive or therapeutic interventions. And uh, through these two examples, I've uh, selected just a few, some low-tech, some low-cost that are uh, available uh, to various degrees with the exception of some of the latter C. difficile interventions that impact on the respiratory tract and the GI tract. So understanding whether the microbiome and its modification can actually attenuate risk of infection, uh, decrease the risk of nosocomial infection, is a very interesting and important clinical area of, uh, of interest and uh, a research priority for many. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dr. Cook, for the overall uh, overview of uh, of VAB and CTFL, and especially the, the new data regarding the microbiome. My pleasure now to introduce our last speaker, Dr. Prana Malik, who is an Associate Professor of Critical Care Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Malik has great interest in sepsis prevention and management, especially in cancer patients. She is a co-chair of the Sepsis Committee at MD Anderson Cancer Center and chair of the Multi-Institutional Texas Medical Center Sepsis Collaboration. She has planned and hosted multiple events towards sepsis awareness among healthcare workers. Dr. Malik will talk on sepsis prevention and management in cancer patients. Dr. Malik is yours. Thank you so much for the invitation to speak today on sepsis prevention and management in cancer patients. And um, I'll note here that this presentation will address mainly the adult uh, but not the pediatric population. I have no conflicts of interest to report uh, for this talk. As an introduction to this topic of uh, sepsis in cancer patients, I want to emphasize a few points. First, that the presence of cancer increases the risk of sepsis by tenfold. Mortality rates from sepsis in cancer patients are 55% higher than mortality rates in non-cancer patients. And cancer patients with sepsis have three times higher length of stay and hospital costs than cancer patients without sepsis. Clearly, these are non-trivial numbers, and as such, the prevention and management of sepsis in cancer patients requires a great deal of care and attention. Now, um, for the main question for this presentation, what uh, is the difference between the prevention and management of cancer patients, uh, sorry, of sepsis in cancer patients compared to non-cancer patients? And before we delve into that, I think it's worth mentioning that both prevention and management of sepsis depend on recognition. And we must be able to accurately define it if we aim to prevent and manage it. Regardless of the system being used, such as search criteria, um, screening algorithms, or quantitative scores, there can be confounding factors in identification and presentation of sepsis in cancer patients. Among those uh, confounding factors um, include the presence of immunosuppressive agents such as steroids, chemotherapy agents, um, and, and other agents that uh, are going to suppress the fever response. Um, there may also be minimal or absent signs of inflammation at the actual site of infection, and that can be due to severe neutropenia or the use of various antipsychotic therapies for the treatment of cancer. 
Additionally, if the effects of chemotherapy on organ dysfunction scores are not yet fully understood, these scores may not be good discriminate, discriminatory, um, may not have good discriminatory power in the immunosuppressed patient. Um, and consequently, more studies are needed for a better understanding of this effect. Uh, that being said, although there are not many differences in the prevention and management of sepsis in cancer patients compared to non-cancer patients, these few differences are, uh, or considerations are very uh, significant when it comes to this care. First, we'll do a very basic review of sepsis prevention in non-cancer patients. Uh, in the general population, the recommendations include vaccination against infections such as influenza and other pneumonias, as we heard from Dr. Pilishvili earlier today paying attention to keeping wounds clean, uh, good, performing good uh, hygiene such as hand washing and bathing, um, recognizing signs of infection such as um, confusion, fever, chills, rapid breathing or rapid heart rate. In the healthcare setting, the guidelines recommend careful infection control practices which encompass those for the general population but also uh, mention expert nursing care, catheter care and management barrier precautions, which we've heard about um, earlier today as well, um, air, airway management with elevation of head of bed and subglottic suctioning. Now, uh, these practices are augmented by oral chlorhexidine gluconate for oropharyngeal decontamination in order to reduce ventilator-associated pneumonias as well. So uh, the prevention of sepsis in cancer patients includes all of those measures that are mentioned uh, for non-cancer patients, plus special attention to additional risk factors. Uh, the use of long-term central venous catheters, whether peripheral, tunneled, or subcutaneous in cancer patients is certainly increasing in frequency. And this is due to the ease of insertion and catheter care. Uh, but these catheters are associated with rates of removal um, due to infection of 2.3 to 2.8 per 1,000 catheter days. Additionally, um, risk factors include the presence of neutropenia, which greatly affects sepsis prevention. Neutropenia is defined uh, as prolonged if occurring greater than seven days and is considered profound if the absolute neutrophil count is less than 100 cells per millimeters cubed. Um, such prolonged and or profound neutropenia can increase susceptibility to infection by a whole host of organisms such as gram-negative, gram-positive, anaerobe, opportunistic, and fungal organisms. Uh, interestingly, neutropenia is becoming less of an independent predictor of in-hospital mortality. Um, this is thought to be due to better antimicrobial agents and use of colony-stimulating factors, which can substantially shorten the period of severe neutropenia. The effects of nutritional treatments can also confer additional um, risk factors. Uh, for instance, uh, TPN, or total parenteral nutrition, increases risk of fungal infections. This can be compounded by concomitant neutropenia as well. Now uh, we'll proceed to the very basic review of sepsis management um, in non-cancer patients. These are based on surviving sepsis campaign guidelines and include obtaining cultures before antimicrobial therapy um, if no significant delay occurs in the treatment because of that um, plan, administering broad-spectrum IV antibiotics uh, and antimicrobials within one hour of recognition of sepsis, performing fluid resuscitation with the goal to normalize lactate, attempting source control as soon as possible within the first 12 hours if feasible, um, to perform hemodynamic support and adjunctive therapy such as uh, vasopressors, inotropic agents, and corticosteroids um, as appropriate. 
and uh, includes other supportive therapies such as uh, blood product um, administration, glucose control, mechanical ventilation use, neuromuscular blockade, so sedation and analgesia that accompanies that, as well as renal replacement therapy um, and prophylaxis. Now, the, these um, finally include goals of care, which can be, which should be addressed as early as feasible, and include a treatment plan as well as um, end of life planning. Management of sepsis in the cancer patient then includes all of those measures mentioned previously for non-cancer patients, um, and include a few special considerations. Um, we uh, have to be especially mindful of um, uh, the prolonged uh, neutropenia. Um, uh, pardon me. Uh, we have to be uh, mindful of um, antibiotic resistance um, in cancer patients in whom um, prophylaxis can be um, a co- common practice and can definitely affect treatment options um, for sepsis. The use of granulocyte uh, stimulating factors can affect white blood cell counts and potentially bendemia levels. So trends in these values can be very hard to interpret, uh, leading to difficulties in assessing effectiveness of ongoing therapies. Uh, White blood cell count transfusions can not only uh, complicate monitoring of white blood cell counts, but can additionally lead to potential complications such as respiratory failure and acute lung injury. Prolonged neutropenia, which certainly affects prevention of infections, can also hinder optimal effectiveness of treatment for infections. And finally, severe thrombocytopenia is a special consideration because it is um, uh, limiting in terms of surgical interventions for source control and can hinder removal of infected uh, tunnel catheters. Now, this can occur for multiple reasons, including the underlying disease, chemotherapy agents, and the um, sepsis um, itself. So, in rapid-fire conclusion here, um, sepsis care in cancer patients is evolving rapidly, similar to that in non-cancer patients. Um, Sepsis-related mortality rates in cancer patients are decreasing, similar to that in non-cancer patients. Yet, mortality rates, costs of care, and length of stay in cancer patients with sepsis remain unacceptably high. Cancer patients require special attention and have unique considerations for the prevention, identification, and management of sepsis. And I will end here. Uh, Hopefully we made it on time to be able to um, roll everyone over to the next session, and thank you very much for this opportunity to speak. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Amara. That was really great. Um, And for the informative uh, talk, um, maybe I can just uh, take one question. Uh, Regarding the GCSF, how strong the evidence in terms of using it in cancer patients? Um, That's an excellent question, and I think we have a a plethora of different types of evidence. Um, But again, at this point, the the routine use is not really supported, and um, I think it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to take a look at the further studies in this, um, um, especially in this patient population but we don't have uh, strong evidence to guide the use of it. We come now to the end of our session. I would like to thank all of our speakers for the excellent presentations. I would like also to thank our audience for their participation and their interactive questions, and I apologize that uh, we could not entertain all questions due to time, uh, time limitations. 
My special thanks also go for our sponsors for their valuable contribution to make this a very successful event. And I would like to thank the program chairs, Prof. Conrad Dinard and Prof. Simon Penfors, and the, the Global SIPS Alliance, uh, especially Mr. Marvin Duke, and uh, our uh, coordinator, Diego, uh, for making this a very successful and uh, this event a reality. Thank you very much, all, and uh, wish you a very successful Congress. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. The next session will be released on November 4th and will be very special. It will be a panel discussion by people affected by sepsis and family members. I hope you tune in then. Fair, fair.